You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 116 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. Disregarding any differences in gross returns and capital gains, how are property and shares treated for tax purposes? Are there any differences? This is the question that Bob Deutsch looked into and wrote about. Bob is the senior tax counsel of the Tax Institute. Here are his thoughts. Some little while ago, I was reading a book by Michael Yardley called Guide to Investing Successfully. And there's some stats quoted in there that suggest that the returns on Australian residential property is roughly 7.4% per year, although it might not be in the current year, but on average 7.4%. And that that's significantly better than the rate of return for shares, which is relatively smaller at 5.5%. And that was judged over a 10-year period from December, or sorry, a 10-year period to December, 20, to December 2015. And over a longer period, the returns were more consistent and around the 10% mark, so they were closer together over the longer period. But in any event, all that got me thinking about relative returns from property and shares and what's the tax impact of investing either in property or shares. And so that then got me started on, well, what are the pros and cons of each? I started looking at items such as stamp duty, which is a state-based, state or territory-based tax, so it differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but in almost every case, irrespective of which of the eight jurisdictions, if you think of six states and two territories, whichever one you look at, there is usually no stamp duty on shares, but very significant stamp duty on property. The stamp duty on property can be as substantial as in the order of forty to $50,000 for a million-dollar transaction. So it's a sizable impost which doesn't apply in the context of shares. The second area that I looked at was land tax, which again is a state or territory-based tax, so there are eight different forms of land tax, although one territory in particular chooses not to impose land tax, but generally speaking, There is no land tax imposed on shares, but there is invariably land tax imposed on property. And again, it's not inconsequential. It can be as high as 2% of what's referred to as the unimproved capital value. These are very rough figures, but it's a substantial impost. Now, if you just look at those two alone, stamp duty and land tax, in tax terms, you are significantly behind when you invest in property compared to investment in shares. Can I ask you two questions? Yes. The first one is you mentioned that one territory or state doesn't impose land tax. Do you mm. remember which one I that think is? it's the Northern Territory. I see. I'm pretty sure it's the Northern Territory, but I can check that afterwards. Yeah. I think they have no land tax. And the second question is stamp duty. You mentioned forty to 50000 on a mm. million dollar property. How does stamp duty work? Is it in brackets like yes. income tax? Yes. Okay. yes. So there's a high, I think there's a high threshold, just 800,000 or so, that is 
tax-free as well? And, and of course, it varies from state it's to state. Exactly. I was just about to say that it varies across the board. There's a threshold for land tax as well in each territory, in each state or territory, but the stamp duty is sort of, it goes sort of on zero to a certain amount. It's 1%, then on the next bracket it's 1.2, and on the next bracket it's 1.4. But in New South Wales, for example, that's the figure on a million dollars. That That's not doesn't mean that it's um, 0.4% at all levels. Yes. It kind of gets to that level. Yes. But if, if you halve the property, 500,000 doesn't mean that it's 20,000. It's going to be something less than that yeah. because the rates are lower at yeah. those lower levels. But it's always quite useful to work on a million-dollar property. It just gives you a very round number and a very easy percentage to calculate. Looking again at the comparison of shares to property, when it comes to shares, you currently get franking credits, which basically means that the dividend return on the shares is taxed essentially having regard to the corporate tax that has already been paid before those dividends are distributed to you. So to give you a very simple example, assuming a corporate tax rate of 30%, If a company distributes a $70 fully franked dividend, you as the shareholder are treated effectively as having received $100. You then calculate how much tax you should pay based on your marginal rate. And then the $30 that has been paid at the company level is taken off. So if your marginal rate is 45%, in other words, you're a top-rate taxpayer and you receive such a fully franked dividend, you will get a $30 credit against the $45 that you would otherwise have to pay and you'll only have to pay $15, being that excess amount. If, on the other hand, you are a zero-rate taxpayer, in other words, the dividend is the only income you receive and therefore you're a zero-rate taxpayer because you're under $18,200, The tax that's paid by the company still operates as a credit, but this time you get currently a full refund because the $30 exceeds the amount of tax that you should have paid, which is zero, and therefore you get that $30 back. Now that, that particular aspect of it, is currently under threat from the proposal that has been put forward by the Labor Party and they have indicated that if they are elected at the next federal election, which is to be held sometime by May 18, 2019, they will deny that refund of the excess imputation credit. So you'll still get the credit, but you won't be able to generate any refund from receiving that credit. That rule is going to apply apparently from the 1st of July 2019 if they're elected. The date may be a bit ambitious and it's not entirely clear that if they're elected, particularly if the election is held very late in the piece, it's not entirely clear that they will be able to get that through both Houses of Parliament by the proposed commencement date. But I have every expectation that if they are elected, they will get it through Parliament and it will commence to operate, but possibly a little bit later. Now, there are two important exceptions to that rule about denying the excess imputation credit. Uh, 
The first is if the person receiving it is a recipient either in full or in part of an aged pension. If the shareholder is an aged pensioner, and that could mean that you're getting $10 from the federal government per fortnight, it's only got to be a part pension, that denial of the excess imputation credit will not apply under Labor's policy. The second exemption is if the, tax, if the taxpayer is a self-managed super fund and as at 28 March 2018, any member of the self-managed super fund was a pensioner, an aged pensioner, or a part-aged pensioner. Either the member got the aged pension or got a part-aged pension as at 28 March 2018. If that is the case, my understanding is that the whole of the self-managed super fund will be taken out of the rule that would otherwise deny you under Labor's proposal the excess imputation credit. Now, all that is currently the position that's quite complicated. None of that, none of it, is relevant to property investment. So again, it's a significant advantage for shares over property. I read in your preamble, I think last week or the week before, that the um, franking credit, when it was introduced, actually wasn't refundable. Correct. I thought that was very interesting. It wasn't so I refundable think under... from 1987 till 2001. Yes, so under the Hawke and, Hawke and Keating governments, it wasn't, wasn't refundable. Refund. And then Howard slash Howard Costello introduced... In 2001, and so they've had 18 years now of refunds of excess imputation credits. So that'll disappear if Labor is elected and gets this through both houses. It'll disappear, as I say, 1 July 2019 is the talked about start date. I don't think they're going to be able to do it by then, but who knows? They, they, they may be able to do it if the election is in March, but I'm sort of thinking they're probably going to have it in early May, but who knows. You mentioned that if a part-age pension or a full-age pensioner is in the SMSF as of 28th of March 2018... Age pensioner, recipient of an age pension yes. from the government. Yep. Yes, that then the entire SMSF will be able to f claim a refund what about if a recipient of an aged pension joins an SMSF later or starts an SMSF later? I don't think it qualifies. Oh, really? So it's just a one-off introduction it's a one -off rule? For that, for that date, because that's the date they announced this policy. I see. So in, in 20 years, when everybody who is on an aged pension at the moment, or in 40 years, when everybody's in an aged pension at the moment, is, is gone, mm. then that rule won't apply that's anymore. Right. And it won't, I don't think it'll be 40 years. Because if you're on, on an aged pension as at the 28th of March 2018, it means you're over 65. I was just thinking maybe somebody yes. receives it early because of a disability or... That's true, but that's, uh, that's probably not an aged pension. That's probably a different type of pension. Yes. It's got to be the Social Security age pension. At least that's what they've said. Again, with all these things, it depends on what the legislation ultimately says, which we don't know. So this is, to some degree, a bit of guesswork. Okay, the next item that I wanted to talk about was capital gains tax. And here the position is fairly similar to both shares and property in the sense that 
capital gains tax applies to any shares which you've acquired after September 1985 and which are disposed of more than 12 months after the date of acquisition. That applies both to shares and to property. Currently, in relation to both shares and property, if the shareholder is an individual, under the current legislative framework, there is a discount of 50% before you include an amount in your assessable income. So to give you a practical example, if you buy an asset for $50,000 and sell it 10 years later for $100,000, the capital gain is $50,000. The discount is 50%, so you only include $25,000 in your assessable income. That's under current arrangements. Again, the ALP has a proposal to halve that discount. In other words, the 50% discount will come down to 25%. So to go back to that example that I gave of purchasing at 50,000, selling 10 years later at 100,000, once the ALP policy is fully implemented, the amount that will be included in your assessable income will go up from 25,000 to 37,500 because you only get a 25% discount under ALP's proposal. Now, of course, there will be some grandfathering, so presumably if the asset is purchased before the commencement date for this rule, you'll still be able to get the full 50% discount, but that is yet to be worked out as well. Now, the other matter that I wanted to touch on, again, shares versus property, are deductions for interest expenses. The current position is that deductions for interest expenses are fully available whether you are buying shares or property. So if, for example, with shares, you enter into a margin loan arrangement where you have an interest rate of perhaps 13%, because margin loans tend to be much higher rates of interest, and your return from your shares is 5% fully grossed, fully grossed up, that differential of 8% gives rise to a loss which you can offset against your other income. So if you've got other salaried income, you can offset that expense or that loss. And similarly with property, if you borrow at 8% and get a 3% net return, the 5% differential will give rise to a loss and you'll be able to offset that against your other income. The Labor Party proposes to change those rules, both in relation to shares and in relation to property. This is from in relation to assets that are acquired after a date yet to be announced. So they'll make the announcement, I assume, after the election if they're successful. And the effect will be to quarantine the excess interest deduction for offset against future income from similar assets or capital gains from those assets. So if you have an excess deduction on shares, you'll have to carry that forward to later years for offset against other income that is generated from your investment assets, which might be shares or property. There's no asset by asset or class by class segregation there. So Labor's not going that far, but it will be looking at the totality of your investment income versus the totality of your investment interest expenses. 
and if the interest expenses exceed the income, you won't be able to use that excess for offset against other non-investment class income. Now, as I say, that's from a date yet to be announced. So they haven't said that's going to be 1 July 2019, and it's almost certain that it won't be. Far more likely to be something like, I guess the earliest probably would be about 1 October 2019, but more likely 1 January 2020 is the likely start date for that negative gearing restriction provision. Again, that's only if the ALP wins the election and successfully navigates the proposed legislation through both Houses of Parliament. My view on all this, if it comes to pass that Labor wins the election, is that they are likely to get all these measures through both Houses of Parliament. And I say that largely because it will be very difficult for the crossbenchers, whoever they are, to be able to argue that Labor do not have a mandate. They will clearly have a mandate for these changes. They've proposed them, in some instances, two years before the election, so they will have plenty of ammunition to say these things should be allowed through. Finally, in relation to the comparison between shares and property, I just mentioned other deductions. There are very few in respect of shares. In respect of property, there are a lot more. So when you think about property, you can think about uh, agents' commissions, they're, they're usually deductible, all sorts of expenses, for example, relating to depreciation. None of those things usually apply in the context of shares. Just be aware that in the context of property, the Coalition has done some work in this regard and they have restricted certain deductions. So, for example, travel expenses to view property and certain depreciation deductions are no longer allowed in relation to property under the Coalition's plans, or under the Coalition's laws, I should say. To cut a very long story short, I've done some maths on all this, looking at those, I think there's about seven different advantages or disadvantages between shares and property. And if you compare, for example, a million dollars invested in property to a million dollars invested in shares, and if you assume similar rates of return, which of course is never really going to happen, but just for the sake of this exercise, I'm making that assumption. If you factor in stamp duty, land tax, franking credits, and the CGT differences or similarities, I find that a share investment in net after-tax terms would give you a 40% greater return than what you would get from property. Obviously that's subject to a number of caveats because for a start the two investments will never increase at the same rate and the returns are never going to be the same. So the capital growth won't be the same, the dividend versus rental returns won't be the same. So this is a little bit mythical but it's helpful just to understand what is the difference between the two. And I should also mention that stamp duty and land tax rates change as well over time. So that's also a factor that you need to think about, particularly the land tax, which will be a recurring element if you hold property that is subject to land tax. But nevertheless, taking into account all those qualifications and restrictions, I find that looking at the raw numbers 
40% better return for share investments over property, particularly because of stamp duty, land tax and franking credits. Three questions. Mm -hmm. The first one is, my, my thinking might be flawed. The, the franking credits, they always, of course, the franking credits always sound like you get something extra when you hold shares. But it's actually that the company already paid mm. that money. So somebody already paid that money and the shares give you an ownership interest in the company. So indirectly, you mm. already paid the money. So I'm not sure whether we compare apples with apples when we give shares the full benefit of the franking credit. Yes, except that we look at it on the basis of grossed up dividend yield. So grossed up dividend yield looks at not only the cash you receive, but also the benefit of the franking credit. So when we compare shares to property, you need to compare the net return on the property versus the grossed up dividend yield, because the grossed up dividend yield is telling you what is the amount that the shareholder is entitled to having regard to the company tax that has already been paid. So if Labor's plan comes to pass, the grossed up dividend yield will only be the amount that the shareholder receives in cash, whether that be by way of a cash dividend or all the refunds. So we're going to take that into account as well. Exactly, think. and then it's actually the same. Well, it might be. We just don't know how the numbers are going to fall out. But if I wanted to compare Rio Tinto shares, for example, to property, the current grossed-up yield would be in the order of 9%. So it's a very high dividend yield, but I'm taking into account there the fact that the tax that's paid at the company level belongs to the shareholder. That's why we're looking at the grossed-up dividend yield. Can I just go through the example because I'm, I'm a bit slow in the take-up. No, no, no. Let's say we have two different buckets. One is property, mm -hmm. $1 million of income. The other bucket is shares, and we hold 100% of the shares, and they and the company makes a $1 million profit as well. So we, we receive $1 million of cash directly from the property bucket, but we only receive $700,000 of cash from the share bucket because the company already paid $300,000 of tax. Then we get a refund of the franking credit, assuming we don't have any other income and assuming mm -hmm. the interest is actually somebody else. But then we receive a refund of these $300,000. So in the end, we also have a million dollars of cash in our pocket before we then start paying our own mm. tax liability. So on a cash basis, property and shares are the same. Well, in the example you've given there, that's true, but the rates can differ. They don't have to... It's not always going to work out that way. And if you currently look at shares in the Australian market, many of the standard stock staple shares that investors are putting their money into are paying much higher rates than the net return that you get from property. So I've mentioned Rio Tinto. You can look at BHP, any of the big banks 
they're all paying dividend, grossed up dividend yields of somewhere between 7 and 10%, which is significantly better than most property investments where returns can be as low as 2%, but if you're doing particularly well, they'd be 5%. Yes, because most property investors don't buy for the um, current return, they mm. buy for the future capital gain. Yes, but mm. a lot of shareholders do as well. Yes, and what you're saying is right, but the higher return is not due to the franking credits, the higher returns are just due to higher the company. Returns, yeah, yes. higher returns. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Second question, coming back to the limitation of negative gearing that Labour is suggesting, have you looked overseas? Because what Labour is suggesting sounds very familiar to me. I mean, mm. I'm not very versed in it anymore, but I'm quite sure that the US and quite a few countries mm. in Europe already have mm. these limitations yes. on negative income. Yes, look, that's a very good point and one that I should have made before without being prompted, but nonetheless it's important to reflect on that. There are a number of countries overseas where there are restrictions of this kind. The one that I'm most familiar with is the UK. The UK has had a scheduler system of taxation that, that does not let you offset property losses against other income. But other countries, the US, I'm pretty sure, does the same, although I couldn't quote your chapter and verse there, and many of the other European countries do as well. That doesn't necessarily of itself make it right, and I have some fairly strong opinions about negative gearing and the difficulties that are going to be associated with introducing this type of legislation. But I think that people who say this is just complete nonsense what Labor is proposing are very much overlooking the fact that there are many countries throughout the Western world which have introduced measures of this kind. They've lived with them for decades through property busts and property booms and there hasn't been the kind of draconian outcomes that have been suggested by some people. One other question. Deductions for property, yes, there are a lot more deductions for property, but that's not necessarily a good thing. It could also be a bad thing because it means you incur, you only get a deduction when you actually incur those costs. So when you receive $1 million of dividends, unless you negatively geared those shares, mm. the $1 million of dividends is basically yours. There is no other deduction, whereas when you receive $1 million of rent, you still have a whole bucket of Mm. payments to make so yes. you don't walk away. So in a way, the additional deductions you incur for property are a negative, are a negative yes. not, a, not a plus. Well, that, that's true. I'm focusing on the tax outcomes. And so from a tax point of view, incurring those additional deductible expenses is actually helpful if you're just focusing on the tax bottom line. But you're quite right. You've incurred those expenses. That's in a sense... In an economic sense, that's a real negative, but um, we have to take it into account as part of the calculation okay. of the tax. Yes. The main things that have given rise to that 40% difference are the stamp duty, particularly because that comes out right at the start. So immediately, with property, you're working from a lower base and it's lower by 
in New South Wales, $40,490, which is quite a size of... On a $1 million property. On a $1 million property, $40,490, which would give rise to a substantially lower starting point. It's not insignificant. Then the land tax builds on that each year, and the franking credits, we've already discussed that, in one sense it makes a difference, but in another, as you've pointed out, it doesn't make that much of a difference. But they're the main things that really give rise to that differential outcome in pure tax terms. Welcome back. I can't think of any other topic that seems to be more divisive at the moment in Australia than negative gearing and how we tax property investors. Bob made some more comments about this on the side, which I wanted to share with you. TaxVine is the weekly newsletter of the Tax Institute, and in every edition you write... The preamble. The preamble. What we call the preamble. Well, I wouldn't say every edition, but it's turned out that it's almost every edition. So there's a few... I think I've done 40 now this year, so I'm totally exhausted. But um, Bruce Quigley's done one recently. Stephanie Caridi's occasionally does one, but I do 90% of them. Yes. During the year. Yeah. Do you have a list of topics you work through or is it something mm. that just comes up? Each week I just look through the news and decide what's topical. Yes. And last week's was very topical and very controversial, the negative gearing one. Yes. This yes, I read that one and you week's. responded to a, a listener com or a reader comment. Yes, yes. Mm. Uh, there's been others. Mm. If you see tomorrow's mm. or Friday's, I should say, it's... An endless list of feedback, some positive, some negative. But that's right. It's a horn's nest that... Yeah. Yeah, people think that you're political. If you don't say Labor's policy is just bad, then you're political. But it's really... Um, but you weren't cool. saying whether it's good or bad. No, you were just well, trying to... I keep to... saying this, but they don't read it that way. Because I tried to explain what it's about... Exactly. They took that as tacit endorsement of it, which is not true. No. And shouldn't be interpreted that way. But, you know, some people can't divorce their politics from objective analysis, and that's where the problem is. So they yeah. just want me to say it's terrible. That's all. And the, the first step is to actually understand yeah, exactly. what Labour wants to do, and then exactly. the second step is the judgment. Is, and Is the judgment, and they can do the judgment. I'm happy for them to do the judgment. I don't really want to be seen to be siding with the coalition or with Labor. It's not. I don't see that as our job. No, of course not. Our job is to explain what is happening and what is proposed. People can then make their own assessment of it, and they do. But a lot of people don't want to hear anything about what the what is actually happening. No, I thought it was very interesting because I ha actually had almost no understanding of what Labour is actually proposing, you know, mm. whether it's just one certain mm. asset group or whether it's across all asset groups. Yeah. So it was, all asset groups. So it was helpful to yeah. actually hear that. But even that, even that is not entirely clear because all they've said is, well, it's going to apply to shares and to property. Well, there are lots of other assets as well. Bonds are an asset. That, I included that as part of the example, but I've heard nothing from Labour about whether that's right. I still don't know whether it's right. Welcome back. 
In the next episode, episode 117, Bob Deutsch will talk about the Medicare levy and whether there's actually any point in charging a separate levy rather than charging it all as one amount of tax. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.